Uh, it's a real pleasure to be back here, and I'm back here um, almost a quarter of a century after my last visit. <laughs> Much has changed, and it looks like all for the good. Um, so um, tonight I'm going to read um, a little bit, something old and something new. I'm going to read a, a short chapter from my last book, Silence, and then I'm going to read from my new work as well. Um, silence was a long time in the making. Um, I first thought about writing something about silence in 2001 after having visited um, the Cistercian Monastery of Sanank in um, southern France. But I, I could never figure out how to, to do that until I actually visited a prison in Philadelphia, Eastern State Penitentiary, which was the where um, the silence and solitude of um, solitary confinement was first invented. And, it, and while walking through there, it just occurred to me that um, a book sort of oscillating between the penitentiary and the monastery would say a lot, of, could, could say a lot about both the um, demands and the rewards of silence. And so that's what I've done. I've woven through uh, the story of Eastern State Penitentiary and the story of monastic silence together in this book. But tonight I thought, um, especially you, I, I've heard people the first night reading about sort of the, the quiet and the sense of time here automatically changing, you know, in, within a day once you get away from your life. So um, this short chapter called The Voices of the Pages talks a little bit about that. So I thought I would read it. it it's really about reading, silence and reading. So, the, um, and this happens about halfway through the book, and I, I don't think I need any context to set it up. Um, a few things have grown quieter over time. Even on the subway, amid jostles, screeches, conversations, and stares, an aura of silence seems to surround the readers in the car. It may be defensive, but it's a silence all the same and not so unlike the habitual silences of readers in a library or in a chair at a home, their absorption, distancing voices, engines, and birds alike, the same sounds that can feel amplified and distinct before sleep or just after waking. To learn to read, after all, is a descent into silence. I can still conjure the room where I first learned to mouth the words on a page, the map of the world rolled up above the chalkboard the green canvas shades partially drawn over high windows of watery glass, the alphabet and cursive letters strung around the room. Our future lay in learning the efficacy of joined letters as much as it lay in learning to read, a, read beyond our first efforts. All our practice and repetition reading aloud to one another and then to the teacher. We repeated, repeated, then whispered the pages to ourselves, then silently mouthed them until the words sped by faster than we could possibly say. How, how long that took, I have no idea, but I know the silence was an accomplishment. It accompanies me still, whether I'm skimming a newspaper, mining a website for information, or absorbed in a novel, and it's how I've always imagined readers, silent within themselves. So it's strange to think that all of it, the var variety of things I now peruse, the speed at which I read, the silence, would have been impossible for medieval monks and nuns to imagine. Although silent reading wasn't unheard of in antiquity or the Middle Ages, people then read 
usually not as today, principally with the eyes, but with the lips, pronouncing what they saw, and with the ears, listening to the words pronounced, hearing what is called the voices of the pages. It is a real acoustical reading. Legere means at the same time audere. One understands only what one reads, he, what, what one hears, monastic scholar and monk Jean Leclerc explained in the 1960s. It is an activity which, like chant and writing, requires the participation of the whole body and the whole mind. Doctors of ancient times used to recommend reading to their patients as a physical exercise on an equal level with walking, running, or ball playing. Of course, the murmuring of innumerable readers could be, dis could be a distraction in the monastery. In his rule, Benedict urges, should anyone desire to read, he should do so without disturbing his brothers. Such reading was, an in was inextricable from a life of prayer and was to be given full attention. At fixed hours, time should be given to certain definite reading, for haphazard reading constantly varied and as if lighted upon by chance that not, does not edify but makes the mind unstable. Taken into the memory lightly, it goes out from it even more lightly, William of St. Thierry noted. The scriptures need to be read and understood in the same spirit in which they were written. The spirit in which books were written and the spirit in which they were read was also meant to be the spirit in which they were to be patiently copied by medieval, medieval monastic scribes. Although the practice was necessary for the economic well-being of the monastery, and one more assurance against idleness. Copying manuscripts might have, above all, been considered a spiritual labor. The work was arduous. Even before a scribe dipped the reed or quill into ink, the parchment had to be dried and stretched, then scraped and clean, clean and smoothed with the pumice stone. Each sheet had to be lined with a ruler and all, the ink made from lampblack or tree galls, the quills cut and slit. And, as Leclerc noted, the copying of manuscripts was an endeavor that also required the entire body. Scribes, often the younger members of the monastery, who had sharp eyes and steady hands, likely mouthed the words as they copied them, thus embodying the text, though not all of the scribes understood what they were writing. A skilled scribe might produce two books a year. The Bible could take 15 months to copy. At the monastery of Sanant, the scribes worked in the low, vaulted warming room just off the cloister. As the only heated room in the monastery, it was the one place where the ink wouldn't congeal in the winter. Imagine them at their desk, in their white robes, light from the cloister slanting in. Since candles were often forbidden in the, in the scriptoriums for fear of fire and concern that the facts might stain the manuscripts, it's likely that, the dark that in the dark days of winter, they had only the burning tree trunks in the fireplace for added light. In general, Cistercian scribes, in keeping with the spareness of the architecture and the simplicity of their lives, produced unornamented un un texts, perhaps broken only by a modestly illuminated initial letter, which possesses an orderly, abstract beauty to us now. Upon the completion of a manuscript, a scribe might record his or her name at the end, though not all scribes sign their work, and it is likely that women were more reluctant to do so than men. 
They also rec recorded the hour the work was finished, the day, the year. Sometimes they added a plea. The work of writing makes one lose his sight. It hunches his back. It breaks his ribs and bothers the stomach. It pains the kidneys and causes aches throughout the body, proclaims one inscription. Therefore, you, the reader, turn the pages carefully and keep your fingers from the letters, because just as hail destroys the fields, the useless reader erases the text and destroys the book. A wealthy medieval monastery might have had no more than a few hundred books in its library, far fewer than I have now in my home. And most monasteries possessed more modest collections, which might be stored in a cupboard or cabinet. However modest or large the collection, only books considered of value would be copied, and each book was considered precious. Some were even chained to lecterns to prevent them from being stolen. The value of a book wasn't separate from the value of reading, reading itself, which was central to monastic life. At the beginning of Lent, the abbot would distribute a book to each monk or nun who could read, and that book was to be studied throughout the year. Several hours of each monastic day were given over to Lectio Divina, divine reading, but such reading wasn't confined to the time spent bent to the pages. It was expansive and ongoing linked to all the other activities in the monastery, to be contemplated while a monk or nun tended bees, hoed the garden, or kneaded bread, and then recalled again and again during the vast silence of the day. Their reading worked its way into their prayers, their thoughts, their recollections. Some part of your daily reading should also, should also each day be committed to memory, William of St. Thierry instructed his novices at Montieu taken as it were into the stomach to be more carefully digested and brought up again for frequent rumination. He also counseled, you will never enter into the Apostle Paul's meaning until by constant application to reading him and by giving yourself to constant meditation, you have imbibed his spirit. You will never understand David until by experience you have made the very sentiments of the Psalms your own. There is the same gulf between attentive study and mere reading as there is between friendship and acquaintance with a passing guest. It is said that readers in the Middle Ages had capacious memories. No doubt the design of books made it necessary. Without table of content, tables of contents, chapter divisions, and indexes, all of which would consistently arrive only after Gutenberg and the printing press in the 1400s, favored passages weren't easy to retrieve. And surely the slow pace of reading, as well as reading aloud, helped with memory, as did the continual engagement with only a few books. But most essentially for, mon for monastics, as Jean Leclerc explained, to speak, to think, to remember are the three necessary phases of the same activity. To express what one is thinking and to repeat it enables one to imprint it on one's mind. What results is a muscular memory of the words pronounced and an oral memory of the words heard. It is what inscribes, so to speak, the sacred text in the body and in the soul. Progress with divine reading may not always be steady. Some days one needs to return to the literal, trusting the words on the page, rereading, attending, thinking, ingesting again and again, the labyrinthine progress of engaging with one's reading 
as an essential part of life. In early Cister Cistercian monasteries, where only the slant of natural light and the flickering of small candles accompanied readers, surely the low light and the surrounding world enclosed in shadow narrowed the focus of readers and was integral to the slow progress of divine reading. Perhaps the practice even grew, grew out of the world of light and shadow the monks inhabited, the quality of their concentration inextricable from the limits of their condition. In the same way that modern Japanese writer Junichiro Ten Tenizaki has suggested that the quality we call beauty must always grow from the realities of our life and our ancestors forced to live in dark rooms, presently came to discover beauty in shadows, ultimately to guide shadows towards beauty's end. The meager light that Cistercian so intently read by now would be considered impossibly adequate by most of us. The realities of our life involve brilliant light and speed, so often associated with the noise of the modern world. And although light and speed have made possible the silence surrounding the act of reading, they have also created the condition in which words often quick are quickly consumed, coming and going as passing guests more swiftly all the time, as the world dissolves into a future where books are accessed through the ether and the main floors of libraries with their rows of luminous screens are akin to the decks of starships. Now, even the most modest pages of surviving medieval books and manuscripts are more highly valued than belief itself, or so it seems by the way they are so carefully preserved in rooms in Boston or Paris or London, where gauges continuously monitor, monitor humidity and temperature. On occasion, they are taken out and displayed in low light. I have been among the visitors slowly moving through hushed rooms bent to the display cases, one of those useless, useless readers separated from the parchment and ink by glass and unaccustomed to the beautiful, careful script of centuries past. Some of us might try for a little while to silently mouth what we see, but the strangeness of the script slows us down. Legibility in practice, remarked typesetter, type designer Eric Gill, amounts simply to what one is accustomed to. Anyway, that was, that was reading then and now. And in fact, that was, it's kind of funny, that was the very first piece I wrote for this book. It sort of was my entry into it. Um, and it, it occurs halfway through the, through the book itself now, but it was sort of helped me to just taking that small little parcel of um, silence in reading helped me to sort of, um, anchor myself in the larger subject. Um, so, and now for something entirely different. I, I went from silence, and, and in fact, the book I'm working on now is the only book I ever um, knew I was going to write before I'd finished the previous one. As I was working on silence, there's a chapter um, in the latter part of the book about the silence of women, which I thought was, um, entirely necessary for the book because it, it even within the monastic world, um, women's silence is, is different because um, they're lower down in the hierarchy than um, men in the monastic orders and that that's affected them th in the monasteries through all the centuries, even to the present day. And it was um, 
during, while I was writing that chapter on the signs of woman, women, I came to understand there was also um, women's place in the world depended on their marital status. That a woman who was single really had no place in the world because her place in the community um, depended on her wedding band and who she was, who she was married to um, decided her fate within the community. So the book I'm working on now is tentatively called A Place in the Universe. And it's a history, it's um, the hidden history of how single women have made their homes. And single women really, um, up until the 19th century when they were able to go, um, the industrial age enabled them to work in factories, um, single women basically had no choice but to stay at home and serve others, um, their parents, their married siblings and hope at best for a room in, in the rear of the house to live out their days. And it was only with um, the Industrial Revolution that women, um, single women, found some sense of in independence. And I, writing this book is very personal to me. I've been single all my life. And so, and I went and bought my house in Brunswick, Maine in 2006 and never gave a thought to that, how that that might not be possible. I walked into the bank with full confidence that I could secure a mortgage. It was only later that I realized up until 1974 that women far more financially secure than I am were turned down for mortgages or credit of any kind until federal legislation outlawed the discrimination um, based on sex or marital status. So I think of this book as establishing another chain of title to my house, that I owe um, my ability to live as I want in the present day to the lives of all these women in the 18th and 19th century who fought for their places to live in the world. And it was a fight. I mean, uh, um, it wasn't only people were afraid to give single women status, place, independence. And um, even they were even turned down at the boarding houses of the 19th century. They were, they were afraid single women were loose. They were afraid single women would disrupt, disrupt, the, disrupt the order. So it was a struggle. But um, there's always sort of a, there was a shining spot that I just chanced upon. The, the, um, I, I'm going to say this book has been full of surprises in writing it, and I'm, I'm not even halfway through. And one of the great surprises were single women homesteaders. Um, in 1862, Abraham Lincoln signed the Homestead Act, which made it possible not only for men and families to homestead in the West, but also blacks and single women and immigrants who um, intended to become United States citizens. Um, and single women homesteaders, and th this is part of the hidden history um, very few, the, the, the general thought about women homesteaders is that they were wives who were dragged to the West and that they suffered from wind madness and um, were miserable and buried their children along the way. But there was a, there's a whole other story. Um, 200,000 single women homesteaded in the West. And most of them did not intend to, to keep their homesteads. They intended to prove up which was a process of um, you know, being able to claim the home after five years, and then sell their homestead in order to have a nest egg, and they could go you know, to college or go start a business with that nest egg. So they, it was the first opportunity single women had 
to get a purchase on savings. You know, single women of, who are not middle class, upper middle class, or, or wealthy, had a, had some kind of purchase on savings. So I thought I'd just read you the beginning of one of the homesteading chapters, which I thought was going to be one chapter, but is now three. So <laughs> that's how much I love the love the subject. But I'm going to read you about the Ammon sisters who um, moved from Illinois um, to um, to stake a homestead, and. Um, uh, their story is quite remarkable, in fact. So I'm just going to read the beginning of the chapter, and it's um, called Life Had Done Something to Us Out Here. When the Ammon sisters left Illinois to take up their homestead in 1909, they could hardly be blamed for being upbeat. Edith, who was the author of a memoir called Land of the Burnt Thigh, which, where I got most of my information for their story, Edith remembered that back home, some of the girls we knew talked about going homesteading as a wild adventure. They boasted of friends or relatives who had gone to live on, on a claim as though they had gone lion hunting in Africa or gold hunting in Alaska. As the Ammon sisters approached their property in western South Dakota, they felt excited and assured. They'd filed on an abandoned claim with a shack already on it so they believed they were in for comfort even during their first night on the prairie. They held on to that hope on their 30-mile carriage journey from the town of Pierre, where the train from Illinois had left them, even as they traveled through what they perceived as desolate, forgotten land. When they arrived at that claim with blistered hands and faces and parched from the hot wind of the day, Edith recalled, there was nothing but space and the sun-baked plains and the sun blazing down on our heads. The sight of their living quarters did nothing to cheer them. And this was the goal of our long journey, the tar paper shack. They walked into a dingy, cramped space, dirt over a planked wooden floor rife with knot holes, one narrow bed, a few crates, a few homemade chairs. It left them dispirited enough to want to turn around and head home the next day. They would not have been alone in that. A good share of women never adjusted to life on their homestead and quickly returned home. But going back to Illinois didn't offer the Ammon sisters much. Their mother died when they were young. Their father had remarried and had a second family to support. Edith and Ida Mary were in their early 20s, and their father, father's financial situation was precarious. They knew they couldn't call on him for help. But they were also overwhelmed with the thought of staying. It's clear from Edith's memoir, written decades later, that they hadn't a clue as to what they were getting into. She writes, neither of us had the slightest knowledge of homesteading conditions or experience extending beyond the conventional, sheltered life of the normal city girl in the first decade of the century. The Ammon sisters in that moment could not have imagined that they had entered a world on the cusp of change and their own efforts would be an integral part of it. First, their reluctance had to slowly let go. During their initial days, it was perhaps fortunate that they were caught between worlds. Efforts to secure their return were delayed. Then they began to see that they weren't alone. They met generous neighbors who provided them with essentials and helped to orient them in their new life. Their shipped possessions soon arrived. Eventually, it seemed easier to stay than to return. And after a while, they began to settle in. Edith recalls, at first we read and reread the letters from home, talking of it constantly and wistfully like exiles. Almost without our being aware of it, 
we ceased to feel that we had left St. Louis. It was St. Louis which was receding from us. Women's independence has always included a conversation between domestic obligations in the world. To this day, deliberations about the balance of work life and home life for women remain unresolved. The Lowell Mill Girls, which is an earlier part of the manuscript, had at least their meals prepared for them and their linens provided for. Those who went west had a house, however modest to keep, and they did so without modern advantages that they enjoyed, enjoyed back east. Abby Bright, who is someone I mentioned earlier, had come from a farm in an age before electricity, so it wasn't su such a stretch for her to dry her clothes on bushes. Many of the later homesteaders, such as the Ammon sisters, left behind cobblestone streets illuminated by electric lamps. They'd taken trolleys and flipped a switch for light. They'd had indoor plumbing. Some would have used washing machines and electric irons. Although staking a claim wasn't exactly being thrust back into the colonial era, they could purchase canned goods in, sto canned good in stores. The mail brought them regular news. They received ship goods. Eventually, automobiles crossed the gra grasslands. But in addition to facing such a new and stark reality, they often had to overcome profound naivete. Young one, one young woman, Helen Coburn, who'd grown up in a small town in Iowa, prepared for homesteading in the unsettled territory of Wyoming by packing a rifle, mandolin, golf clubs, tennis racket, umbrella, handbag, and traveling bag. She would eventually prove up on her claim and remain in the West for her entire life. I mean, that's kind of the amazing thing about these stories is they're stories of utter transformation. On their homesteads, single women hauled water from outdoor wells or springs or streams, often having to break ice in winter. They were tied once again to the wash tub, the washboard, and the kerosene lamp, which involved arduous and tedious work to keep clean. They grew food and preserved it. When they traveled at night, they waited for the moon to rise before they set out on, horse, on horseback on the trackless plains. The shacks themselves couldn't be further from the square and solid homes of back east with separate rooms for separate uses. The claim shack had more kinship with rooming house quarters, rarely larger than 10 by 12, the same one room used for sleeping, eating, reading, writing, cooking. Often homesteaders built their furniture in the wall, into the walls to save space. Boxes and crates served for chairs. Raw wooden boards made a table. A small stove, likely a laundry stove traditionally used to heat sad irons, supplied them with meager heat in winter. Edith Ammons described the tar paper shacks as little paper shell hovels of single thin board walls. The boards often sprung apart and cracked by the dry winds a thin layer of tar paper outside and a layer of building paper on the inside. We got along fairly well unless the wind blew the tar paper off. Then we had to stop up the holes with anything we had and patch the paper as best we could. The shacks offered some protection from the prairie winds and blizzards and the unrelenting sun, but it often did a poor job of that. In came the insects, rattlesnakes, cold, and snow. During the winter, Buckets of water turned to ice. Snow settled on them as they slept. Yet here was a home so cramped and dark within that it must have also magnified the sense of the world just beyond their flimsy door, for they opened it onto a vastness. 
prairie, mountains, buttes, the natural world in all its brutality and beauty. For the Ammon sisters, the making of their quarter section into a home was in part an undertaking of making that cramped and dark interior appealing. They scrubbed the floor and set down a rug. They put regulation shack lining paper on the walls to keep out the weather, bought a second cot. They also did what so many women did. They worked to create home-like touches in the cabin, making it more than mere shelter. They built a bookcase and painted it red. They put up curtains, they sewed pillows and stuffed them with prairie grass. Little by little, the old tar paper shack took on a home-like air. It is curious how much value a thing has if one has put some effort into it, Edith writes. From the moment we began to make improvements transforming the shack, it took on an interest for us out of all proportion to the changes we were able to make. Photographs of the interiors of women's claim shacks invariably show care. Tablecloths, mirrors, photographs, pictures on the wall, a row of teacups hanging from hooks, china plates lined up on a shelf. I trimmed off sod by each window, so I had two nice window seats, explained one young woman. Some had their organs and pianos shipped to them. Like many other homesteaders, women had their photographs taken in front of their claim shacks, posing for postcards they'd mail back east. They sit or stand against a background of absolute vastness, interrupted only by their mini miniature shack of mud or board or both. They have thought about presenting themselves. The woman emerging from the door with her flower-decked bonnet, the woman in a pale formal dress strumming her guitar. The incongruities are everywhere. Culture stands in proximity to nature. The care women took defied the dirt and disorder that we commonly expect from shack life. The photos convey an air of pride, of home, proof of life, and of an accomplishment that had, no, had by no means been guaranteed. The women in the photographs may seem as small as a single star in the night sky, but they are living brightly in a world that could have easily overwhelmed them. To read Edith Ammon's account of their homesteading experience is to witness a transformation that many women who traveled with west and stuck it out underwent. Part of it had to do with endurance itself, to have something asked of them, to have been released from the stifling role of the single woman, sequestered, allegedly protected, and without challenge beyond the family home, or alternatively, to have been confined by the utilitarian necessity that had come to mark so much of urban life for young women of limit, limited financial means. The Ammon sisters were caught in storms, caught in the night, caught without food, caught in their own naivete. They learned to read the weather and when to avoid travel, to keep their flimsy shack warm enough in winter, to handle a gun. There had been a continuous round of going down and coming back up with a second wind, Edith remarked, but I had gained a little each time and was stronger now than before. I think I'll finish there. Anyway, that's, that's the story of Edith Ammon. I'd be happy to answer